coming up on Pass the Secret Sauce. I mean, there's two fundamental constraints to executing a lot of transactions, right? Deal flow and capital. Mm -hmm. You know, those yep. are those are the two big ones. I mean, management's probably sort of a third big consideration, but mm -hmm. deal flow is something that there's no perfect answer to. I'll tell you how I've built my deal flow, but I would also tell you like, am I I every single day like think about how I can get better deal flow, right? Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I'm investing aggressively in trying to generate better deal flow too. So I'm always thinking about how I can improve it. I would say if you're just starting out, there's, I mean, the best deals are always off market, right? Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, they're not with a broker, they're not with an investment banker, they're, they, you know, they come to you, you can't control these necessarily, but the best deals come to you from your network, and they're off market, right? It's yeah. somebody's uncle's, you know, selling their company, and they you should talk to you should talk to Matt, right? Yeah. Or, you know, like, oh, my buddy's like really crushing it with his t shirt business, like, he doesn't know what to do next. Like, can it, can I talk? Can he like talk to you? Right? Those are the best kinds of deals that come down the pike. But you have no ability to really influence those other than just getting your name out there and building relationships and leveraging your network and all that. So I mean, that one builds over time, but yeah. it's hard to kind of jumpstart. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Shields. On Pass the Secret Sauce, we unscramble the life stories, skills, and secrets from the most wicked smart minds and interesting people to uncover their experience and recipes for success that will help you get an edge on your own life. My goal is to help you rein in on the chaos that life throws at us by learning from other high achievers. If you're new to the show, we have episodes with founders, CEOs, investors, and leaders. So if you like to learn and are motivated to improve your life, then kick back and listen to our guests pass their secret sauce. Today on Pass the Secret Sauce, we have Matt Bodner, who is a partner in Bodner Investment Group. So Matt has a long entrepreneurial background. This goes back to his childhood when we get into the whole story, how he grew up and some of the things that he realized very, very early on, which was incredibly, incredibly interesting. I, I'd never really heard anyone make this correlation before. So listen in, make sure that you pay attention, uh, all of you parents out there. Matt had some really interesting perspective on the way that he was brought up, and I, I really, really love it. But Matt, again, has started his own companies and has more recently acquired even more properties. So that's primarily what we talked about today was more mergers and acquisitions and comparing them to starting your own company. And he has a lot of arguments uh, about why mergers and acquisition is a better path to go. And you know, this was a, a fantastic episode. Matt gets into some of his process and how he evaluates things and how he generates opportunities for himself. So he, he has a great, great deal flow of opportunities coming in. And again, he touches on you know some of those things. A lot of people don't necessarily want to share those types of techniques and those secrets, but Matt jumped right in and, and was very, very willing and eager to share some of the things that he was doing in his own business. So uh, if you are considering purchasing a company out there, acquiring a company, um, maybe it's a mom and pop, it's a baby boomer that is a baby boomer owner that's looking to retire. Uh, maybe you have an opportunity that you've come across and you're you're considering it. This is an episode that you're going to want to listen to. Or, you know, even if even if you you don't want to acquire something, maybe you're 
in the other position where you're looking to sell your current company, listen to this episode because Matt might be a nice opportunity for you to be able to connect with and uh, generate that that sale that you're looking for. So with that, I hope you enjoy Matt Bodner on Pass the Secret Sauce. Interesting. Well, that's a great question. My So my childhood, generally speaking, I'm the youngest of four and my all my older siblings are half siblings who are way older than me. So okay. the next closest in age is like, I don't even know, 15 years older than me or something. I lose track, honestly. But so I kind of was basically had sort of the benefits of being the youngest, but also yeah. being an only child. So my dinner table, when I think of growing up, I think of me and my mom sitting at the kitchen counter, like watching TV. And she probably would be like appalled if I said that. But my dad <laughs> is like a very sort of active and successful entrepreneur. And he's generally traveling. Um, yeah. And so it was just like me and my mom hanging out, basically. And it was fun. It was chill, you know, had a lot of sort of peripheral family, but it really was just the two of us most of the time. Yeah. What, what, uh, what industry was your dad in? He's still, I mean, he's in the restaurant industry, so he's very kind okay. of active restaurateur uh, even to this day. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Yeah, that's, that's, that's impressive. So obviously that probably, uh, you know, spawned some entrepreneurial tendencies in you as a, as a child, would you say? Did you, did you leech off of any of that type of energy? You know, as a child, I don't know that I fully sort of internalized or understood some of the kind of what, like, I mean, when you're a kid, you don't know that, like, how you're different than any other kid, right? Mm -hmm. So you just sort of take the givens in your life as like the way things are, right? Mm -hmm. um, and only later when you're either sort of start meeting people, grow up and sort of see your life from a different perspective, then you start to understand, oh, like that was really weird. That thing that I just thought was totally normal, right? Or whatever, whatever it might be in your particular life. So I don't think I necessarily absorbed that stuff consciously. I wasn't like, oh, my dad's a businessman and I want to be an entrepreneur, you know, when I was like eight. I actually wanted to be in the military for a really long time. Okay. But I think the lifestyle, the thought processes, all of that stuff. I think at a subconscious level, I internalized a lot of that stuff. And, and one of the things that was really transformational for me as a child that to this day, I, I didn't even really realize it for probably 20 years, how impactful it was, was for a number of years, probably six years, my parents, when I was in about kindergarten through fifth grade, they would take me out of school January through March, and they wow. would go to the beach and bring me along and my dad would be traveling most of the time, but my mom would homeschool me for that time. Okay. And that more than any of the entrepreneurial stuff, I think really transformed my fundamental view on life. Because what I realized was, at, and Tim Ferriss, I think, helped me really crystallize this later in my life. But I realized fundamentally that a lot of the rules and so social structures that everyone thinks they have to follow mm -hmm. are not mandatory, right? So this thing, school, that we're all kind of programmed by for decades, I was getting pulled out of it and living my life completely on my own terms. And I would come back and I would be ahead of the class and I would be doing like three hours of schoolwork a week. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I kind of yeah. realized this thing of like, hold up. The way that they're telling me that I should be doing it doesn't necessarily have to be the way that it's done. And to me, that is kind of a fundamentally entrepreneurial lesson. So yeah. in a weird way, that. like I think that was truly transformational and shaping me as a human, just in the way that I look at anything, because I have this kind of innate tendency to look at any situation and say, well, why does it have to be that way? Why do I have to do it that way? You know, I try to, I, I kind of get right to the fundamental assumptions and try to throw them out if I don't think they're helpful. Mm -hmm. And do you remember growing up whose idea that was to, to take you out? Because I mean, obviously your mom had to have had a, a certain amount of entrepreneurialism running through her 
you know, through her head as well, because, you know, that's something that a lot of parents, I think, would probably say, well, I don't know anything about, you know, homeschooling, or how am I going to learn, or how am I going to remember how to do whatever, you know, the subjects are that you're learning at that age, right? And and obviously, if that happened year after year, she's going to have to keep, you know, relearning all of that stuff again to be able to, you know, teach it to you. So any, any remembrance of, like, how that whole transition, how that, how that, you know, that, that first started happening? I mean, I was probably six when they first made okay. that decision. So I, they didn't, they didn't really give me a lot of uh, kind of weigh in on that, uh, on that decision calculus. But I mean, I'm sure it was probably both of them driving it to some degree. I mean, at the time we lived in uh, Colorado mm-hmm. and up in the mountains. And I mean, it's great. I mean, I was a way better skier when I was like seven years old than I am yeah. today. I'm okay today, but I was like crushing like double black diamonds, you know, fearless seven year old. Exactly. Like, yeah. <laughs> barreling down. But I mean, so we would ski all the time, but like, you get kind of bored of it. Like, you know, Colorado in January through February, like is just like, it starts to get a little bleak. So I think they were just like ready to leave the mountains and wanted to do something and somehow came to that conclusion. What was your favorite resort growing up? Or did you go to the resort? So so we lived in Breckenridge. So that was beautiful. I love generally where we skied. Uh, I mean, we skied all the stuff, but yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's one of my favorite, favorite uh, ski towns. I love Breckenridge. So beautiful. A lot of fun. Love it. So, so what happened, you know, as you started to get a little bit older, did you, did you do the college thing? What, what, what was, you know, what was so, that? So, so my, probably the most fundamentally transformational element of my life when I was a, sort of an adolescent and, or, you know, high school, college, all that stuff kind of mixed together was I was a debater. And I would say if you took everything I learned in high school and everything I learned in college from a skill sets and kind of content perspective. Now, maybe like life lessons and the maturity that you get from college is sort of a different thing, but like you just took all the raw content that I learned and all of the kind of life skills that I learned. I would say, you know, I would give that like this much and debate was like 10 times that, you know what I mean? Maybe 20 times, like maybe a hundred times more from debate than everything else in aggregate. And to me, I'm a huge, huge believer in like speech and debate and it teaches you pretty much, I think, most of the life skills that you need to really do almost anything, right? It teaches you how to speak. It teaches you how to communicate. It teaches you how to research. It teaches you how to write. It teaches you how to present arguments. It teaches you how to present things, teaches you sales skills. I mean, it's an incredible resource and it's a really fun kind of competitive game where you don't even know you're learning a lot of that stuff. And it actually teaches you an insane amount about like political science and world events. And, you know, I mean, we would have like 300 page files on like India, China relations and nuclear proliferation and ocean policy and like all kinds of different things. Uh, and it's funny, like one of my first classes in college, when I, I took a class in international relations and my first paper ever, I forget what the topic was, was just some like random, you know, international relations thing. And I wrote the whole essay just off the top of my head, right? Cause I wow. had read thousands of pages of research about this stuff throughout my high school debate career. And I wrote the whole thing and the professor like, you know, gave it back and he's like, oh, you gave me an A. He's like, this is great. Like the only things that you need to cite your sources and like have like a bibliography and your footnotes and all that stuff. And and I was just like, I didn't have any sources. Like that's just stuff that I knew, you know what I mean? But you obviously learned like that is obviously very important. But like the point is I learned all that through debate and it wasn't like I sat down and I was just like, I have to learn about, you know, the strategic importance of you know, U.S. military bases in the Middle East. It was just like when you're debating about that a bunch, you start to learn about it. And it's a really, really cool skill set. So that yeah. to me was probably the most transformational thing of my young I love adulthood. that. I love that. 
Yeah, and it's it's kind of a different it's a different way to learn the same type of information, like you said, rather than sitting down and you know you're you're kind of interacting and you know people are interacting with you with that content. So incredibly valuable. I'll throw I, not to turn this into a commercial for debate. No, put your no. kids in debate, right? But, no, I'm <laughs> but like the other thing that it's really, really, really good at that I think our society as a whole is massively missing today is every single debate tournament. You have to be there's a sort of a topic. Actually, for the whole year, there's the same topic, but it, it, you touch a lot of ground even in a given topic, but every single tournament, let's say there's eight rounds in a tournament, each of them is about two hours, you have to debate half of your rounds as the affirmative, which is basically saying this topic is good, mm-hmm. and you have to debate half of your rounds as the negative, basically mm-hmm. saying this topic is bad, and actually arguing against what you were just passionately arguing for an hour before, and it really teaches you how to think you know, more in a more open-minded way about any issue, because you start to understand the merits of both sides. You start to understand how good arguments are constructed and where the truth might actually lie in a particular issue. You start to understand how statistics can be misused and manipulated because a, you're doing it for your benefit, but you're also breaking apart when somebody else is, Oh, well, okay, well you have that statistic, but really what it's saying is actually this, right? You're sort of defending it. So I think that's a, a skill set that's in massively short supply. That is world. really that is a really, really cool perspective. I I never I never considered that before. I love that. I love that. Have you ever heard of um Chris Voss's uh, Never Split the Difference by chance? Yeah, so yeah, he was uh, he was a guest on on my podcast uh, at one point actually. But yeah, that's a great book. He's a he's a super sharp dude. I I'm a big fan of any any sort of crucible like the FBI, the military, all that stuff where it's like yeah these tactics are battle tested, right? Yeah. Literally in some exactly. cases, <clears throat> that's where you're going to get the best stuff, right? Cause business is a little squishier, but like military hostage negotiation, like yeah. the margin for error is nothing. Exactly. Right? So yeah. you have to get it right. Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. So you've, you've started a number of different businesses too, in, in different industries, different verticals. Talk a little bit about your first one. What was the first thing that you got involved in and what was sort of the catalyst that, that made you move in that direction? Yeah. So zooming, kind of coming back to my entrepreneurial journey. So my background after high school, college, all that stuff, I worked at Goldman Sachs up in New York for a number of years. Mm -hmm. And I actually came back from, uh, we we lived in Colorado for a bit, moved to Nashville when I was in fifth or sixth grade uh, and kind of did all the whole middle school, high school thing there. Came back to Nashville after being up in New York for a while and started originally helping my my family in the restaurant side of things. So I was kind of helping them out on the restaurant business and really the first company that I acquired was a was sort of related to that. It was a point of sale dealership, which point of sale is like those old computer terminals that you know you key your orders into. Acquired a point of de- a point of sale dealership that was essentially functionally bankrupt. They weren't actually didn't go through like a bankruptcy process, but yeah. was barely keeping the doors open. You know, they had hundreds of thousands of dollars of receivables and couldn't couldn't even really operate the business. And it was servicing some of our restaurants. So we we're kind of familiar with it. Came in, kind of negotiated a framework with, with the ownership to take the business over and turn it around. And that was really kind of the first company that I, I actually acquired. I didn't start it. I've since I've yeah. started several companies post facto, but that was really one of my first kind of jumps into the entrepreneurial world, which was a really cool journey. And I can tell you all about that company if you want to dig into it. But that was, that was where I got started. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, from your mindset standpoint, you, you'd never run a business or anything like that before, correct? You've never, nope. yeah. So, so what was your, I guess, what was your thought process and, and where did you get the, 
I guess the mental fortitude to, to say, you know what, I'm going to, to go and, and, you know, buy this thing. I have no idea, you know, I've never run a business before, but I can turn this around. Like, you know, these people that obviously had been running the business for, you know, X number of years, they failed at it. What made you feel like you could come in and, and, you know, change that? Two things. I mean, one, it was pretty low risk, right? Because the business was already failing. Yeah, so that's true. <laughs> Yeah. Like I, the worst thing I could do is just, it's going to fail, fail, which more. is already yeah. <laughs> pretty much a guaranteed outcome in the way yeah. that things were tracing. So it was like, you know, it wasn't that hard to say, okay, well, the business is going to fail. Maybe I yeah. can fix it. And, and the second thing is the, the deal structure itself enabled me to be pr pretty hedged in the event that it did fail, right? Like I didn't go out and pay millions of dollars for this business. Uh, I ended up, the business was doing about a million dollars in revenue the actual sort of price that I paid was for, for my kind of buyout of it was about $70,000. Okay. And I didn't pay that in cash. I paid it deferred over like a multi-year contract, right? Got and it. the reason I was able to negotiate that was because I was like, okay, well, this business is on this trajectory, right? Mm -hmm. I can come in. I think I can fix it. I'm not 100% sure I can fix it. But if I do, you'll win. I'll win. Everybody's going to win. And so... That was, you know, with a with a de-risked deal structure and the fact that the business was already heading in a place where it was going to most likely fail anyway, yeah. it felt like a, uh, I guess, a relatively risk-free learning laboratory, so to speak. And I mean, I screwed all everything you could imagine up probably as the CEO. Yeah. And CEO is not even an appropriate title for the size <laughs> of that enterprise. But, you know, that was, that's what my thought process was. I was also a brash, young, you know, mid twenties, something anything. or other. Yeah. And I was like, I'm the, I'm the smartest and best person at everything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love it. I love it. So, so you, you've started your own companies and you, you've got uh, some, some mergers and acquisition experience looking back on, on that, you know, comparing those two different approaches to, I guess, growing your portfolio. Do you have any, any sense as far as, you know, what, what is the better approach because there's a lot of there's a lot of people today that are you know out there promoting you know doing mergers and acquisitions acquiring acquiring other properties acquiring other businesses um, and obviously you still you still have the other camp that's you know start something from scratch and you know move forward like that yep. any any perspective on you know those two different oh, yeah. paths yeah yeah I have a very strong perspective I've done enough startups and failed at several startups too, mm -hmm. to where I, if, if I had my druthers, I don't want to do any more startups. I, mm -hmm. I think startups are super over glorified. I think that it's a, a massively more difficult path to get to the same place. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, the idea of buying a company is so much more attractive for a million reasons. And we can talk about the numbers, we can talk about a bunch of stuff, but like I mean, when you're doing a startup, you don't have product market fit. You have zero customers. You have zero dollars in revenue. You know, you have no team, no staff, like you have nothing, right? You're inventing it all. And it's, you know, you, it seems like cool and sexy and whatever. And like, you get to plaster like CEO on the door, but like, you know, most startups, vast majority of startups fail, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we already yep. know that they're yep. extremely high risk. Most of them never even find product market fit. And like, this is also like the only scenario where it's even like maybe makes sense to do startups, I think is like, Hey, it's Matt. If you've been listening to my podcast for a while, you know that I've been involved in the multifamily real estate realm for a while. It's something that I truly, truly enjoy. And I wanted you, my listeners, to be the first to know about something new coming out. We're calling it the MultiWiser Deal Room. It's a community of individuals just like you 
who want to get wise about multifamily real estate investing, developing, and even owning and managing your own complexes. You'll be able to network with people from all sections of the industry, from investors looking for deals, project managers looking for investors, real estate brokers, property management agencies, contractors, remodeling experts, finance gurus, you name it, we're going to have it in the network. I've been at this for a while, and I know it takes a community to make just one of these projects happen. And the MultiWiser Deal Room is my attempt to shorten your learning curve and get you plugged into leading experts fast who can help you close your own deals. We start off with a video glossary of over 150 commonly used terms to increase your understanding and help you get moving. Also included in the community are training videos to help you be successful, like how to put together a pitch deck, build a team, and so much more. We're going to have live interactive Zoom calls where you can ask your questions and learn from people who are actually out there in the industry doing it. For more information, go to multiwiser.com. In very specific niches where either A, it's like something like SaaS where you know you have insane multiples and so maybe the risk is worth it. Or B, it's something where you're inventing an industry, right? Like if you're making like a new genetic engineering program or like, you know, you're like building like new food proteins and stuff, like there isn't a company you can go buy, right? But if you're just sort of generally thinking, hey, I want to be successful in business and I'm thinking about starting a dry cleaner or I'm starting a, I mean, nobody's probably doing that, but you know what I mean, right? <laughs> like I'm starting my next marketing agency or whatever it is. I think you're way, 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 way better off just buying a company instead. And, and there's an, a huge, a huge portion of baby boomers, people out there retiring, selling their companies every single day. And you're so, like, you, you, you put yourself in such a better position. Like even if you buy a company, like we'll, we'll, we'll dig into, I'll use some just really high level math to not make it overly complicated. But if you're going to do a startup, if you're going to bootstrap it, that's going to be a huge lift, right? You're going to be yeah. by yourself for a long time. It's going to be really difficult, all this stuff. Not to say that you can't, people have, right? But like generally, you really want to take a big swing. Like you're going to raise, let's say, a couple hundred thousand dollars from friends and family, right? Or whoever, or maybe like 50 grand, whatever you can cobble together. But it's not uncommon for a startup to raise a seed round of two, 300 grand, right? That's a yeah. very common path for the startup world. So if we said for that same sort of seed capital, right? You can go get an SBA loan. And if you could put down, you know, 200 grand, right, that's, you can get up to 90% with an SBA loan, right? So we back that out, you know, let's say you borrow 2 million bucks, you put down 200 grand and you buy, you know, you borrow 1.8 million, that lets you buy a $2 million company with that, with that same amount of money that you would gamble on the startup. Yep. Yep. And that $2 million company, I mean, if you're paying, you know, five times EBITDA, which for a company or that, for a company that size would be like overpaying probably, mm -hmm, you can mm -hmm. buy $400,000 a year of, of EBITDA, right? Yeah. Yep. So you're buying a stream of $400,000 of earnings, which is paying for the SBA loan, right? Mm -hmm. And that's SBA has crazy at advantageous amortization. So it takes a really long time to burn off. So the interest payments aren't super high. And you, that business, if it's doing $400,000 of EBITDA, if it's operating at like a 20% margin, right, would be doing 2 million bucks of revenue, something like that. Mm -hmm. I'm just like pulling these numbers out of thin air, yeah, but I think yep. that's right. So, I mean, if you told me for the same amount of money, I could either have nothing or, and scrap by to get a dollar of revenue, or I could buy $2 million of revenue and hundreds of thousands of dollars of earnings and a team and existing customers. Mm -hmm. And by the way, if you're buying it from a baby boomer, they're probably, they're, they may not even have a website, 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I've yep. literally seen a million companies. I've seen companies doing $10 million a year in revenue that don't have a website. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or like their marketing is super antiquated. Like they're, you know, there's um, so many unoptimized things they're using processes from 1987, right? Mm-hmm. Like their mm-hmm. paper forms. Writing, yeah. Stuff. Yep. Writing like, everything down. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's so many inefficiently operated companies. And I mean, it, it makes sense, right? Like if you're 65 and your company's throwing off a couple hundred grand a year, you don't want to go reinvest in like e-commerce. Yeah. You don't care yeah. about that. Like you, you know, sell it, take some cash and let somebody else figure out all that stuff. Yep. And the flip side is like, if you're young and hungry, it's a tremendous opportunity. There's mm-hmm. so to me, the idea of sort of acquisition entrepreneurship versus startup entrepreneurship, it's not even a question in my mind. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. And the we'll call them boring businesses, right? The, the businesses that are uh, the dry cleaners, like you said, because everybody's dying to, to open up a dry cleaning company, right? Obviously, those are the companies that, that have been around and are the, are the, the, the companies that the baby boomers are, are retiring from. And you know, those are the ones that are going to sell. Any, I guess, any thoughts on specific industries maybe that, that you see maybe doing better than others? Or is it, you know, again, looking at different areas and looking at their, their past business and looking at their assets, whether or not they have a website, how much upside there could be to, to grow that company. The, the question is, is do, you, do you see an industry that is still considered sexy or something that you'd want to get involved in or like, you know, not boring, but, but something that has been around for a good number of years and, and has the potential to continue keep moving forward for a good number of years. Does that, does that make sense? Does that? I, I understand what you're asking. I mean, I think there's, there's, I mean, I evaluate hundreds of acquisition opportunities every year. Right. Mm-hmm. And I see deals in industries that I didn't even know existed. I mean, all the time I'm like, Oh wow, that's a business. That's really interesting. Right. Like yeah. you learn about crazy stuff that, that, you know, people are doing millions of dollars a year in revenue, doing something that you've never imagined was was even possible to be a business. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I'm super agnostic when I look at industries. I mean, I think there's reasons to go into a specific industry. One of them being like, if you have expertise relationships, you know, mm-hmm. at kind of value add infrastructure, whatever, in a given industry, it's easier to play in that pond. But you can also solve for that by partnering up with somebody who's an expert in that industry. And then suddenly you can piggyback off of all of their expertise and relationships and all that kind of stuff. So I would say, I mean, there are, there's a ton of M&A going on in very hot industries, right? Like e-commerce, SaaS, all that kind of stuff. Like there's M&A activity. It's just really expensive, right? And yeah. so it's super hard to pinpoint, like, I can't tell, I mean, I can't tell someone that, well, you should be focusing on just this particular niche because they're all of them have pros and cons, right? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe even dry cleaning, right? Like it's uh, the upside is that you can probably buy it at a really attractive multiple. The downside is that it's not as sexy and hot. And it's like the sexier the industry is, the higher the more price expensive. is. Gonna be, yeah. The more multiple it's going to trade at. And so, you know, you might, you might be able to buy a dry cleaning company for, if you had, let's that same analogy, if you had $2 million acquisition price leveraging a $200,000 down payment, right? It's like functionally the same idea as like buying a house. Right. If you had the, if you had $200,000 or if you had a $2 million sort of acquisition pool, right. You have to make a decision as the acquirer. Would you rather use that to go buy a dry cleaning company? That's going to throw off half a million dollars, or would you rather buy an e-commerce company that's doing a hundred thousand dollars in EBITDA? Right. Mm -hmm. And again, that might not be like apples to apples comparison, but you get my point is like, I don't know. Right. I mean, 
maybe I'd rather just have the dry cleaner or maybe the e-commerce company, I can triple it in two years and sell it for an even more absurd multiple. And so even if I'm paying 2 million, I'm going to sell it for 7 million in three years. It's still a slam dunk, right? So, and, and maybe I know a bunch of people in e-commerce that I can plug into, or I have a friend who is like thinking about quitting their job that I could come and give them some equity and hire them as the president of that company. And they have some expertise within that particular niche, right? There's tons of factors that mm -hmm. you may or may not consider when you're looking at industry. I try to stay loosely industry agnostic, but the, the pro of like being focused in a particular industry is sometimes you get, you can kind of hone in on your deal flow. You can do better outreach mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and you can have a more nuanced and focused kind of plan for adding value to specific companies. Yeah. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. And you mentioned that you see hundreds of deals a year. So you, you have good deal flow coming through. How I did you, more. Yeah. How did you, well, how did you establish that? And again, it sounds like it's not necessarily focused. It is kind of, you know, uh, larger scale, you know, different, different industries and whatnot, but how did you establish, you know, that many people or that many, you know, opportunities coming in? Is that just, you know, reaching out and, and, you know, talking to people or how, how did that all get started? Yeah. I mean, and I would say deal flow is, I mean, there's two fundamental constraints to executing a lot of transactions, right? Deal flow and capital. You know, those yep. are, those are the two big ones. I mean, management's probably sort of a third big consideration, but mm -hmm. deal flow is something that there's no perfect answer to. I'll tell you how I've built my deal flow, but I would also tell you like, am I, I every single day, like think about how I can get better deal flow. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I'm investing aggressively in trying to generate better deal flow too. So I'm always thinking about how I can improve it. I would say if you're just starting out, there's, I mean, the best deals are always off market, right? Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, they're not with a broker. They're not with an investment banker. They're, they, you know, they come to you. You can't control these necessarily, but the best deals come to you from your network and they're off market, right? It's yeah. somebody's uncles, you know, selling their company and they, you should talk to, you should talk to Matt, right? Yeah. Or, you know, like, oh, my buddy's like really crushing it with his t-shirt business. Like he doesn't know what to do next. Like, can I, can I talk, can he like talk to you, Right. Those are the best kinds of deals that come down the pike, but you have no ability to really influence those other than just getting your name out there and building relationships and leveraging your network and all that. So, I mean, that one builds over time, but yeah. it's hard to kind of jumpstart. The easiest one, which is the lowest value deals are just brokers, right? Like mm -hmm. you can go to Woodbridge International's website. You can go to Benchmark Capital's website. Uh, you can go to Generational Equities website. Those are probably two or three of the like big, what I would almost call like chop shoppy, like brokerages that will just, they just sling deals yeah. all day. You know what yeah. I mean? I mean, you can go to Woodbridge, well, I don't know, generational equity, you go there, like plug in two or three states that you're interested in that are in like a three hour drive time of where you're at and you'll find 50 companies for sale tomorrow, right? Now, those have been looked over. People have looked at them like, you know, there's a broker that's getting in the mix that may or may not make it easier or harder to get the deal done. Yeah. There's, there's cons there too, but I would say brokers and listings and that kind of stuff is kind of the, the lowest hanging fruit. And then there's, I mean, it's, it's basically just marketing from that point forward, right? Like how do you want to approach any marketing problem, right? Do you want to use outbound? Do you want to use cold outreach? I've used email outreach. I've used email campaigns. I've used direct mail. I've done direct mail, right? Do you want to sponsor a podcast? Right. I've looked, I haven't done it, but I've looked into sponsoring like podcasts about entrepreneurship or even podcasts about thinking about selling your business. Right. So that I can kind of get in front of those people. I've looked at joint ventures. Right. I've looked at how, like, how do you get trickle down deal flow? Right. Like people are doing bigger deals than you who just pass on stuff 
because it's too small for them and send it to you or people who are doing deals that are too small for you or to, you know, that pass you the bigger deals that they come across. Like all of those things, there's a million different ways you can do it. I would say I have kind of a list of probably like 25 plus deal flow strategies that I kind of keep as just a checklist for myself. Yeah. Right now, there's really three big strategies that I'm personally focused on. So one of them is, then they're kind of a mix of inbound and outbound, right? So one of them is just straight cold email, right? And I've actually hired like marketing agencies to do it for me. You can do it all yourself. And I did it myself for a while, but like I have hired marketing agencies to build a database of owners, do a campaign, set up calls with me, right? Or people mm -hmm. on my team. And so that's kind of one pillar right now. The second pillar is like speaking and content, right? So that's why I'm doing this show. That's why I do you know, other like podcasts and that kind of thing is like, I want to get out there and try to generate sort of warm, you know, inbound stuff that may or may not materialize. Yeah. Now that's definitely yeah. a squishier pillar than, than sort of cold outreach, but nonetheless, it is a pillar. And I think it generates better deals fundamentally. And then the third is kind of weird. Uh, and this one is just sort of unique to some, some folks that I know or sort of opportunities that I've come across. But the third is like what I call community engagement. And that's, I'm, a, I'm an instructor uh, at a couple kind of like content communities around M&A. And a lot of the people in those communities are looking to buy companies. And a lot of times they'll come across a deal where they don't know how to finance it or they don't have the expertise in X, Y, and Z. And so it ends up being a source of a bunch of deal flow. And so I look at that kind of community engagement model yeah, as a great. way to, you know, find a community of people interested in buying companies and then add value to that. And then you sort of benefit from ancillary deal flow as a result. Yeah, that, that's smart. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. You also have a, a family office, correct? You, you, did you establish that or is that something that you're, you know, that you're using to be able to invest in these, in these companies as they come along? Is that... Is that basically? So yeah, that? so uh, we have a family office that's basically kind of the restaurant side of things. Essentially, like my my dad's sort of restaurant world is the the original genesis of that. So we do a lot of stuff in the restaurant and hospitality space. A lot of M and A. You know, I mean, that's we have a portfolio of companies that we've acquired over time, and I also learned a lot about acquisitions because I help with acquisitions in that world quite a bit. Mm -hmm. But I also acquire stuff on my own, right? And, and yeah. Kind of buy yeah, my that's, own companies. That's cool. So, so obviously, like you, you said, one of the one of the levers that needs to be filled when you're when you're purchasing companies is obviously the money side of things. How do you go about you know raising that money? Is it is it again creating these different networks of people and saying, oh, you know, we've got you know George over here, Sam over here, who's interested in you know this type of an industry. Let's all partner up and we'll try to find something in that industry, and you know then we'll we'll you know, take that one down? Is that kind of how you've, you've done it is basically just reaching out and kind of networking together with people? So there's a bunch of different ways you can approach that problem as well, right? So, and, and fundraising 101, never call it money, Yeah. right? Yeah. It's capital. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're raising capital. Yep. And we're investing capital. So- <laughs> Love it. <laughs> I don't ever raise money, but I raise a lot of capital, right? Yeah. So the, the best way to do it is to structure deals and find opportunities. And these are the hardest opportunities to find that don't require any capital, right? Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I gave you one example of a deal where I bought that company because it was distressed for, I, I bought it for nominally $70,000, but what I actually did was structured that over five years and I paid it out of the earnings of the company, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I came out of pocket $0 when I acquired it. Similarly, if you can find deals, I mean, it's the same thing, you know, there's a bunch of, of old school like literature around like buying houses for no money down, right? It's like mm -hmm. the same principle, if you can find a company 
it won't likely happen with a broker, right? But there's, there's a, a concept called seller financing or seller carry that's very common in the, in the sort of M&A world. And if you can find the right sellers, i.e. ones who are highly motivated and have a deal that's not being represented by a broker, you can often structure deals <clears throat> that are more advantageous from a seller financing or seller carry perspective. And so, you know, the, the most obvious way to do that would be like, go buy a company, have the seller carry 50% of the purchase price. And that not, not many sellers will agree to that. Like 10 to 20% is probably market average. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm just throwing out like a great case scenario and then find a bank to loan you the other half, right? And then suddenly you're buying the company, the seller's carrying half of the purchase price, the bank's putting up the money down, right? So you yep. tell the seller, yep. I'll give you $2 million purchase. I'll give you a million dollars the day of closing and I'll pay a million dollars over five years, right? And the argument you make for that is, oh, you know, I need to de-risk it. And like, what happens if your key customers leave and like, you're really important to the business. So we need to have a transition plan, like all that stuff, right? And you say like, look, if I default on my payments on your seller note, you just take the business back from me. So you can kind of de-risk it for the seller too, but that's generally like, that's a structure where the seller's getting a million bucks day one, you're coming out of pocket zero, right? And suddenly you've bought a $2 million business with, you know, maybe it, maybe it cash flows $400,000 and the debt service is 200 or 250, right? So you're netting $150,000 of free cash flow mm -hmm. net of all of your debt service. Now, all of the variables have to line up there, right? You have to have a motivated seller. You have to be able to negotiate an off-market structure. You have to make sure that the cash flows can cover it. You have to do all this stuff. And maybe in that scenario, you know, the bank says, well, look, we want you to put something in. So maybe you need to put in a hundred grand or 200 grand or whatever, right? Or, or maybe, you know, you need to put in even more than that. That would get into sort of, we're starting to talk about the second big bucket, right? So that would be one is creative deal structuring. You can do deals for zero cash down, right? And I've done myriad transactions where I've gotten 50% to, you know, 70 plus percent of companies without putting any money into them. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. it takes... You know, it's like needle in a haystack stuff, but it's possible, right? The second one is just what you talked about, kind of, which is like what I would call syndicating the capital raise, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. syndication is essentially saying going out, like smiling and dialing and like raising from friends and family, right? And yeah. so again, it was, is that same idea of if you were to do a startup, right? So let's come back to this idea. You buy a $2 million company, you can get an SBA loan for most smaller businesses. It depends somewhat on the track record in the industry and the collateral base and all this stuff, but just generally speaking for like a small to, you know, small companies doing two, three million bucks of revenue, mm -hmm. usually can kind of fit into the SBA criterion, right? You can get an 80 to 90% down loan. So you would need to raise the balance, right? So you buy a $2 million company, you need to raise 200 grand. It's the mm -hmm. same thing as if you're raising 200 grand for a startup, right? You call friends and family and sell them kind of a piece of the equity and you can structure it all kinds of different ways, uh, however you want to do it. But that would be the other one, right? I mean, and I've done I've done syndications in like the millions of dollars, right? Like calling where you're, you have like 40 people on the cap table and you're just making a million phone calls. And like some, I mean, if you, you know, sometimes you want to get a deal closed, like that might be the only path. Yeah. The third sort of bucket would be once you kind of get into the bigger leagues and we're not even talking about none of these, by the way, are talking about using your own money, which you can do also. Mm -hmm. The third bucket would be getting what I would call sort of institutional capital partners, right? Fancy way of saying like, big companies that give you lots of money, right? So private equity groups, SBICs, maybe other family offices that are looking mm -hmm. to invest in stuff, high net worth individuals, all of those kind of larger institutional capital players, RIAs are another good one. So like, you know, people who cut checks in the millions of dollar range, not in the, not in the hundreds of thousands of dollars range and going out and, use, and, and sort of cultivating those capital partners to provide the capital for the deals. So it all depends on, you know, what you're looking at, what's the deal, what's the story. I would say 
generally my perspective is like, it's harder to find quality deals than it is to find capital mm -hmm. if you know how to pitch, right? Mm -hmm. And that comes back to like, debate is quite helpful for that, honestly. Yeah. But just learning like sales skills and that kind of thing, because a really good deal is going to sell itself, right? If you're buying an incredible company at an amazing price, like investors, lenders, any sort of capital provider is going to be like, okay, this is sweet. Like sign yeah. me up, right? But if yeah. you're, you take a broker's listing at eight times EBITDA for a company that kind of sucks, nobody's going to get that excited about it and it won't yeah. get financed, right? And, and that's where a lot of people struggle is they have a deal that isn't actually that compelling and doesn't make that much sense. And they just kind of take the sticker price from a, from a highly marketed deal with tons of people competing for it. And then they're like, man, I couldn't get the deal funded. It's like, well, yeah, because the deal was bad, right? Yeah. Like you have yeah. a great deal. It's much easier to get it funded. Yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. So you also have your own podcast as well. Can you talk a little bit about what the podcast has done for you know, your organization, your reach, your, you know, even your own self, you know, self-improvement and, and connections? Talk a little bit about what the, the podcast has done for you. Yeah, the podcast is such a weird thing in my life because it has it has very little relationship to everything else that I do. Mm -hmm. which is a conundrum that I've been trying to solve for going on like six or seven years at this point. Like the show came out in like 2015. So we've been at it for a minute. And the, the thing about it, so the show is called The Science of Success. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to plug it. But like, mm -hmm. it's, it's about, we interview like neuroscientists, psychologists, researchers. We do some business interviews too, but it's mostly kind of psychology, personal help, you know, self-help driven. And really what we do is we, we try to figure out how we can use science, data, evidence, research, that kind of stuff to help us make better decisions to live better lives, all of that sort of thing. Right. And so, uh, I mean, we'll branch out. We have like astronauts and poker players and, you know, anybody who's kind of a high performer so we can learn from their lessons, but mm -hmm. selfishly it's been insanely valuable. I've had Love it. 300 plus conversations with like all my favorite authors and, you yeah. know, researchers and, and, you know, thinkers and that kind of stuff. And I've benefited tremendously. Fortunately, through the platform of a podcast, we've been able to share that with like tens of thousands of people around the globe who benefited from listening to it. But like, it's in this weird spot where like, it doesn't really help my other businesses. Like, you know, every now and then, like I'll get a lead or like somebody will be like, oh, I saw your podcast and like heard you're in M&A and like, you know, I'd love to chat or whatever. But 90% of the time, like it has nothing to do with the rest of my life. So I've, that's been something I've been trying to reconcile for a long time. It's a, I mean, I think it's a cool show. I've, I've enjoyed doing it. We did it as a weekly show for five years mm -hmm. and I've moved it to a seasonal format uh, over the last probably 18 months just to kind of both focus the content a little more and just break up the workload, frankly. And that's kind of where I'm at with it today. But it's a, I think it's a really cool show. I mean, we've had some, if you think about like personal help and, 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 you know, personal development, self-help, mm -hmm. like we probably had, and psychology, like probably had anybody you can think of that's like a well-known author, like Chris Voss, yeah. touching him earlier, he's been on the show, like. You know, most of the most of the pop psychology authors and stuff have have come through that cycle in some point, you know, sometime or another. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And I mean, for me, I, you know, you and I would have never met had we had we not had the podcast connection here. I'm sure same thing with with, you know, your list of, of guests as well. You know, it's an opportunity to be able to reach out and connect with some amazingly smart people and I, you know, I, I love talking to entrepreneurs and, you know, other people that are trying to change the world in their own way. So it, it definitely feeds, feeds into that side of things. So no, that, that's great. And you, you've had a, you know, good deal of success with your, your podcast too. I mean, obviously you've reached a, a good number of people, like you said, tens of thousands of people have you know, listened to the episodes and, you know, hopefully learn from it. So, so that's great that, you know, you're, you're spreading that knowledge and spreading that, that, uh, 
you know, ability to be able to learn in that, in that way from those people, you know, through that, through that channel. So, so it's great. Yeah. I view it, it as like a, like almost like a B corporation. If that makes mm -hmm. sense. Like, yeah, it's, I'm more doing it. Cause like I enjoy it. And it's also like, I think people benefit from listening to it, but it's not like some crazy profitable, you know, yeah. cash cow that I'm like, all oh, this thing is prints. Like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. If I was doing it purely economically, I would have shut it down a long time ago. <laughs> yep. Yep. No, no, it's uh, it's fun though. I, I, I thoroughly enjoy these things, but, uh, but Matt, you know, this has been a really, really uh, enlightening episode. Thanks for sharing everything that you've shared with, uh, with us about, you know, mergers and acquisitions and, you know, even getting into some of the ways or some of the things that you do in your own personal companies, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you're open to sharing those types of things because, you know, a lot of people, you might, might shy away from that. So thank you for sharing that everything that you did. Uh, if, if people want to learn more about you, your companies, maybe they have something that they're looking at selling or they they have questions, you know, on acquiring something, what would be the best way to reach out and get in touch or, or learn more about you and, and your process? The easiest way is just my website, mattbodner.com. You can check it out. You can reach me on there. You can hit me on LinkedIn as well. I, you know, I try to check those messages pretty reasonably. But yeah, if you need help with something M&A related, hit me up. I'm happy to you know, share as much insight as, as my time allows me to. Excellent, Matt. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, Matt, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a fun conversation and, uh, and I've enjoyed it as well. Excellent. Thanks for listening. And remember... Pass the secret sauce.